0: Good evening, everyone. Welcome to UX Indonesia Meetup. I'm Yunis Sari, CEO and co-founder of UX Indonesia. I'll be your facilitator today for the Meetup. Today, we are privileged to have uh, Professor Gilbert Cocton in our midst. Professor Cocton is the author of the World Focus Design book that has just been published a few months back and also the research professor at Sunderland University, United Kingdom. He has more than 30 years of experience working in the field of human-centered design with the industry and academic. Thank you, Professor Cockton, for joining us today and the time is now yours.
1: Okay, so as Eunice as, uh, said, um, this is based on my recent two books. Um, I started writing one book and it got too big, but luckily it was in two parts. So I felt much better writing two books in a year than one in a year. I thought that was a bit slow. Um, so and and the, the the main focus of the book is moving beyond human-centered uh, design, software engineering, individual approaches to actually try to get these different approaches to design to coexist. So there's the two books. Um, on my last slide, I will put those. Um, Bitly addresses back up again in a more readable form. Um, So I'd like to start off by looking at an ISO standard that many of you may already be aware of, uh, 9241-210, which is very much an engineering design standard. Um, I'm gonna present an alternative to stages in um, process models called design arenas. Um, these run concurrently. That is not new. That has been a feature of um, product engineering since the 1980s. Very well documented um, by Takeuchi and Nonika, who introduced Scrum to the world, um, or the Scrum notion. Um, so, I think whilst it, it, this still surprises many people in human-centered design, and quite clearly the people who revised the iso standard last year are completely unaware of it as well this is the default practice in innovative engineering and has been for almost four decades now so there's nothing new there but what we have to do is rethink how we go about managing uh, design work and um, if you can't have a fixed process up front that you track then you have to have other ways of tracking things so my approach is called Big Design um, and Big stands for Balance, Integration and Generosity. And it's, um, I, I take a work, a worth focus to um, product strategy um, that allows us to be generous in what we design. So I'll introduce the theory first and then I'll spend a good half of the presentation on case studies. Uh, and then have a summary in time for questions and discussions. So let, let's look at this standard that may well be familiar to many of you. Um, they say in the standard itself, this is a standard for managers, not designers. Um, I think many people in design think that is a, a dangerous and false separation. If you look at long standing creative disciplines like advertising, managers manage accounts. They don't manage designers. You have directors directing designers and it's a coaching and mentoring model it is not a gantt chart and box ticking model um, so this is very much placed within um, classic engineering design models this um, so it's old it's conservative it's prescriptive and like anything prescriptive whether it's a design process or a grammar for a language it's imaginary that the people are saying, this is how it should be, irrespective of how people actually work. Um, And it assumes two things. It assumes stages, not arenas. So rather than having different areas of work in design um, that are taken forward at different speeds at the same time, they have stages that you go through one at a time. It's iterative. But iterative doesn't make any difference to the fact that something's sequential. So people think iteration is good. Well, all iteration does is let you go around the same sequence again and again. The red arrow there is in the original version of this standard, um, which uh, had a, a different number originally. It was an ergonomic standard. And then as the, uh, as the human-centered design standard came into place, they added two more iteration arrows. And the thing is that once you've been round a development process once, your everything from then on has to be concurrent. So if this was possible to do things in this order and stick to it, you could only do that the first time around because once you do your second iteration, all you're doing is updating all of the work that you've done already. So it assumes stages, it assumes sequence, and it also assumes, I think one of the biggest risks in these engineering design models are the arrows between the boxes, where you assume that work products, which are now named in the ISO standard, that work products get sent out of one box into the next one. And the work that's done in a box takes one set of work products and transforms them into another one. So within engineering, people like words like transform, generate, derive, um, and, and these boxes and arrows very much express that hope that what you turn out of one phase can go into the next one and be turned into something else. Um, Whereas if you think of progressing design work, concurrently, you can't assume that anymore. You have to look much more deeply and much more carefully at the way that we connect things. And we know from decades of HCI research that there are problems with these arrows. There are problems with implications for design. So when you do your contextual research, you know, it's not clear what the implications are for a design. Uh, in fact, the difficulty is that a lot of the time, if you follow a human-centered design model, you haven't done any design work when you're doing the contextual research. So you've got, you don't know what design it should have implications for. Whereas if you're working in parallel you can see as the contextual research and the design develop, you can be constantly trying to connect them. Another arrow that is well known to fail regularly in human center design is the arrow from evaluation um, into the other areas. This is called downstream utility. And there are extensive studies and evaluation that show the limited downstream uh, utility, uh, utility of evaluation work. And again, I would argue it's the linear model here that causes the problems. So an alternative approach is what I call design arenas. Um, And I found in in part of political science to do risk policy that there's very well developed um, theories of social arenas there, which I think are very suitable for thinking about design. So any policy field has multiple arenas, which are concurrent. They contain actors who are unscripted largely They have stages where the actors present from and there are informal and formal rules. The arenas interact, but they maintain their autonomy. And the key thing in policy fields and who succeeds and who fails in in controlling policy is to do with the mobilization of resources. And and this is intentional, um, but for design resources, they only have potential functions and you have to activate a function to realize it. And this is often adventitiously, which is an unusual word in English, but I use it to capture the fact that you're not completely in control as to how functions get realized. And that one of the skills in design work is seeing what's happening and making the most of it rather than thinking up front that uh, things are going to happen automatically. That in social arena theory, outcomes are indeterminate and they result from the interaction of arenas. So, that that's quite old work from, uh, from 1992. So, w- what I've got here is work from one of my PhD students. This is Jenny George. And she tracked four design arenas through her research through design. And what you can see on the left is her anticipated findings. And on the right, the actual ones. So, at the end of each ep- activity, at the beginning of each activity, she had expectations as to where she would progress the design. So the example at the top has got most of the, um, the, the progress in this activity being to do with the design of the artifact. But actually, what she found in this phase was that that didn't happen. And generally, if you look at her diagrams, she rarely was able to predict what happened because you can't stop yourself. You might think you're in a design phase, but you can't stop yourself having ideas about, requirements, context of use, and evaluation. The photograph I've just put up is from, I've taught a week course three times at Eindhoven. This was from the last time I taught in 2007 and this is one group using a whiteboard to reflect on their work today and they've got um, four tracks for the design arenas, the same ones in Jenny's diagram. All their circles are the same size. Jenny's are different sizes because she wanted to look at, at, at how Different arenas were progressing. They just wanted to track what they'd done when. But what's very striking from both of these images is how they are naturally working in parallel, um, and they are not trying to separate each stage of design of a classic engineering design model from the next. One of the other things that Jenny did was just at each epi- for each activity in each episode, look at the connections between design arenas and also look at the um, what was the primary generator, what was the dominant arena. So this is an episode where she was developing a questionnaire, um, a quite unusual question. I'll come back later. And she's piloting the questionnaire. And that's why there's a feedback loop um, from evaluation back to itself. And it's not very clear, but she's also got connections to connections. So when you're evaluating, you're evaluating the connection between an artifact and its purpose and what this means is that because you can have connections to connections and so on you can't ever completely cover all the connect possible connections you have to exercise judgment so the diagram with the orange circle is called a most abstract design situation and her other ones with the um, gray and black circles are proportional abstract design situations. And an abstract design situation is a set of design arenas and the comb- and the connections between them. And it's a very high level way of capturing what's happening in design. And you can model engineering design as a progression of design arenas where one by one, a design arena gets added at each stage. So, A study of beneficiaries first, study of purpose next, study then doing the design and evaluating it. And in classic engineering design, you add one arena at a time and you add the connections necessary. But the only connections you've got are the the ones between sequential boxes, uh, which means you miss out on a lot. This is a quote from 2016 um, from a computer scientist on the um, professional doctorate course at Eindhoven. Uh, So she had a formal computing background, and this is a lovely quote from her project report. I was quite skeptical. You just drew four circles. You call it a framework, I asked. No way. A framework is something that takes a lot of labor to make and a lot of effort to study. However, actually, after I actually experienced some real work, I can change my mind. It might look simple and intuitive, but when you accept some of these intuitive things, suddenly the chaos of the creative work clears up and you can see the things that you actually have to do. So I've had hundreds of people through Kai courses, Nordic Kai courses, World Usability Day courses, taught courses at Eindhoven, Reykjavik and elsewhere, where students on one week sprints have been able to start using these very lightweight representations for tracking very quickly. This is a, a canvas produced by NordCap in Helsinki. And this was their way of in the early stages of a project in, from inception uh, onwards for a few weeks on tracking what was happening in each design arena. And then over the top, they put a single Kanban to track what was to do, what was in progress and what was done. My, myself, I would use separate Kanbans for each of the design arenas. A Kanban is a, 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 comes from lean. Um, from Toyota's agile approach to manufacturing. And a Kanban is used to track the progress of, of software development work or any engineering project work. Um, and I would argue you need five Kanbans, one for each arena uh, and one for the connections between them. So I think just taking pause at this point, that design work is concurrent, not sequential. And every account you see that uses boxes and arrows says, oh, but really these things overlap. So you see that in the design schools, the D schools account of, of, of design thinking. You saw that in Bruce Archer's early work in the 1960s on design methods. So you really do wonder why people draw diagrams that they then have to say aren't, aren't actually realistic, and that we actually need to move to visualizations that actually reflect the way that design work gets done. So you make design work concrete in these autonomous overlapping arenas that must be continuously balanced and connected. It's a scrum, not a relay. Incidentally, when Takeuchi and Nonaka first came up with their model of innovation in Japanese automotive and consumer products, they didn't use the word scrum. They used the word sashimi, which is a, a, a raw fish dish. So they, they, they had this metaphor of sliced fish and all the slices overlapping. And unfortunately, when they published in the Harvard Business Review in English, they weren't confident that people would understand sashimi. So they came up with the Scrum and Relay metaphor. Um, And as a result, the people that developed Scrum completely missed the idea of overlapping design phases and they missed an awful lot else. In fact, they only picked up one and a half of the six factors that Takeuchi and Nonika had identified. That paper is very easy to find from the Harvard Business Review. I'm sorry, it's not on my slides. It's called the New New Product Development Game. Um, and uh, Nonika is the father of Japanese knowledge management as well. So if you put in new, new 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 Product Development Game, Harvard Business Review, you should find that paper and it's freely accessible. And we have to track um, design work at multiple levels of abstraction. We can do them with abstract design situations. Um, We can also do them with um, a design arena level, with frames and notes. So, one thing we can do at the start and end of each episode is frame what's happening in the design arena. And Jenny George did that very well, tracking how her understandings of beneficiaries and the design and evaluation shifted as she moved between episodes of design. So, you capture the high-level dynamics with these frames and then the content for kanbans comes from design arena notes they're just a bullet form of what is what you need to consider at the moment they're memoranda and you you um you can feed those into kanbans for progression so i keep mentioning these four arenas one is the creative technical arena where you need both engineering's and creative design skills most of the time in design, you're not working with a final artefact. You're working with an antifact. You're working with a prototype. You're working with a sketch. You're working with a video envisionment. You're working with a Wizard of Oz prototype. And I call these antifacts rather than artifacts. And I invented the word artifacts um, to generalize across that. Similarly, it's never the case in design that people don't have to make sacrifices. So somebody who benefits also has to sacrifice something if it's only time um and then there are people particularly because of accessibility issues or cultural issues or other um differences between individuals um where in fact harm is done um often not intentionally um so there are both beneficiaries and maleficiaries in any design uh so again i invented the word beneficiaries to cover that and an important part of designing is is being realistic about who the winners and the losers are in your design and being sure that you've got that balance right evaluation we well understand that's human focused it's human centered but it's not design if you actually look at what people do when they're designing interactive systems none of those approaches come out of human-centered design not one wireframes workflows they've all got their background in engineering and design disciplines so i would contend that that, the human computer Human-centered design has been great on evaluation. It's been great on contextual research. We are much better off for it. And I don't think anyone doing design thinking innovation these days would think of doing it without involving um, consumers, users, participants, whatever. However, that is not design work. it's It's work that informs design, but it's not the design itself. One area where, again, human-centered design has been quite weak is on product strategy. And again, if you look in in, in industrial design, in innovation and management, um, they are much stronger on strategy. So you've got tools like the business model canvas, for example, and the value proposition canvas. Um, And it's a strategic arena, and I focus on work here. So the, the point is, with these four design arenas, when you're no longer planning the order of work, you have to balance them, integrate them. And I'll come back to what it is to be generous. So I've got three points to the framework I'm presenting. The first is that you have to work concurrently. Now, in reality, people do work concurrently, which is why before Agile, most, you know, a lot of software engineers wrote the documentation at the end. They didn't write it at the beginning because they knew knew things were going to change so much they'd write them at the end. And you know even very distinguished software engineers like David Parnas wrote a paper on how to fake rational design, saying that as long as everything at the end looks like it was a rational process, that it's fine. So there's these four design arenas we work on concurrently and they co-evolve. And again, this is something we've known since the Wicked Problems paper, at least in 1972. Um, Takeuchi and Nonaka, in their studies of Japanese innovation, replicated this with overlapping phases. The problem with wicked problems is that they're not wicked, they're wild, they're contrasted with tame problems, so that wicked brings in a moral aspect that really shouldn't be there. And they're not problems, because a a wicked problem cannot be, you can't define the problem until you've accepted the solution. So that is not problem-solving. It's much more of a quest. It's much more exploratory. Um, So these quests are tests of ingenuity and knowledge. (coughs) And that knowledge arises during design work. It's often knowledge that members of the design team and user participants bring with them. All that knowledge actually gets created during the design work. So what's happening all the time is the design arenas are being framed and reframed. They're being populated and depopulated and they're being refined. Um, And we do this with approaches and resources. So wireframes, personas, usage testing, value proposition canvas. Some of these are approaches like usage testing and usage testing, like any approach, brings a set of resources together, test users, test scripts, profiling screening questionnaires debriefing interviews um, data analysis formats report formats so what all approaches do is they group a set of resources together um, that then have to be configured and adapted for the um for the actual design work so the first point is you have to work concurrently the second point is that you have to continuously correct so, an abstract design situation, as I said, is a set of design arenas and the connections between them. This happens tacitly. It happens explicitly. Um, we know the importance of reflective conversations and back talk from Donald Shurn in Design. And in my book, in the second book, I, I go through nine different modes of connection resource. Three of them are creative. And a lot of early connections and design work, I call concourses. There's lots of different names for them, um, but essentially they are representations of a design that have not been split into arenas yet. So primary generators is one name for them. Patterns from Christopher Alexander is another example of a concourse. Other ones are engineering. So in software engineering domain analysis, um, you can take a scenario, identify the objects in it, And those objects in the context, in the scenario, some of them will become objects in software. So, I mean, that's a a very straightforward engineering approach. You are directly transferring an object from the context into the software. And there are other approaches which, for example, using statistics to analyze user populations, that most people in engineering would accept as scientific, objective, and verifiable. And then you've got other modes of connections that are hybrids, and they can be mostly creative with some engineering aspects or they could be mostly engineering with some creative aspects. But compared to the box and arrow diagrams of engineering design, there's this very rich space of of connection modes. And in fact, one of the difficulties people have when they're studying design work is seeing design decisions being made. And the reason for that is actually a lot of the time design decisions are not explicitly made. You can force them out in design reviews but in fact, my position is that design choices get made through connecting and that you can take any existing approach and extend it to cover between two and four arenas. So a Y frame is an annotated um, wireframe and those annotations can cover all the other arenas that can say what this feature is for, who it's for and and, and what the evaluation criteria for success are. So (coughs) you can take any existing resource and extend it to to multiple arenas so use cases from software engineering i'll show you an example of how we extend those and usage testing as well i'll give you an example of those so other approaches user stories scenarios personas laddering and these are all forms of connection so Again, there's been a lot of work from an engineering perspective on design rationales, which people in creative design don't really have a lot of sympathy with. I think it's just understood in the creative design world that, as Charles Eames said, eventually everything connects people, ideas and objects. And the quality of connections is the key to quality per se. So quality doesn't reside in the artifact. Quality doesn't reside in what you've made. Quality resides in the connections between that artifact and the world. So it's the extent to which the artifact can meet its purpose. It's the extent to which the evaluation can demonstrate that it's met its purpose. It's the extent to which the evaluated purpose is actually what people would value. So th- I talk about, it's not in these slides, but I talk about an axiafact rather than an artifact. And an axiafact is worth that's been made rather than the thing that's been made. So here's an example. I don't know how many of you are aware of LeanX, the Lean UX. There's a second edition of this book now. And just to show the complexity of connections that designers intuitively work with, these are all the connections going on in a, an MVP experiment when planning and looking at the results. So the approach in Lean UX is to accept that you have hypotheses about the artifact and the beneficiaries, that you can't resolve those um, without making something and testing it so a minimal viable pro- pro- prototype in lean approach in lean startup is a is a an art, a prototype with a feature set that is large enough to test your key assumptions about beneficiaries and purpose and you design an experiment which is an evaluation so that experiment has to be designed on your knowledge of the assumptions that you've made in the artifact about p- beneficiaries and purpose, and the the point of that experiment is to test those assumptions, to test those hypotheses. But at the same time, it, in any user study, you will pick up new information and insights that feed back in there, which is why there's all those you know you've got connections to connections, um, and you've got think you've got the planning of the experiment, and you've got the results coming back. Um, And that's just one of many abstract design situation diagrams in the book that just show how simple-minded an engineering design model is compared to what we actually do in design work and the connections that we're making. And you can see why so much design work has to be intuitive, because exposing all of these connections explicitly all the time um, would just stop design work in its tracks. So let's look at some resources for connecting. This is a worth map. And at the top, you've got positive um, outcomes. So this is a, a, this is a, a map for van hire based on consultancy work we did many years ago um, at Sunderland for, for um, somebody developing a, a van hire website. Um, so there, there are positive outcomes. We want a worthwhile transaction that you're ready for something else. You're not worn out. Um, that you've transferred something successfully, that you've improved your home perhaps. Um, and at the bottom, there are things we want to avoid. We don't want people being unable to find the depot. We don't want people arriving late at the depot, bringing the van back or picking it up. We don't want people vir- hiring a van that's not big enough for the load. And um, we don't want people turning up and being un- unable to take the van because they haven't got the right documentation for all the drivers and, um, we don't want people to end up spending more money than they thought they did. So there are lots of negatives we want to avoid, and there are lots of positives we want to achieve. So you've got three layers there of materials, features and qualities, which is one way of splitting up the artifact arena. And then what happens in interaction is that in interaction during an interaction, users will connect the artifact to purpose. So we've got a long-standing tradition of of, of, uh, task specifications, um, user stories, scenarios. We've got a whole load of narrative representations in, in human design that essentially connect the artifact to its purpose. And the thing about interaction design, unlike graphic design, is you can't see an interaction design. You can only watch it. You have to watch people interact to understand whether the design is working or not. So what a worth map does is allow you to reason about the means engine. So on the right, there's a, an arrow, a red arrow going all the way up, um, showing how as a consequence of these features, using these materials and with these qualities, we will achieve these experiences and avoid these negatives. And the big red horizontal bar is there because what, help, uh, you know, most of the time on the web, you're not actually consuming what you bought. There's a gap between booking a van, buying an airline ticket, buying a concert ticket, booking a restaurant. There's a gap between um, order and consumption and payment and consumption a lot of the time. So the best we can hope for from the website is that people feel that they've got a good plan, that they've got good value. Um, if If you want to know whether the website is really working, you have to treat this as service design and actually go and evaluate what's happening at the depot. You can't tell by only by evaluating the website whether you've got a good van hire service or not. The only way to test that is to test that at the, at the depot. So here's a second way of connecting. Uh, so what I've done here is take use case tables. So use cases can often be presented as two column tables with the user does this, the system does that, the user does this, the system does that. And you can add extra columns. There happen to be three extra columns here. You could could add two, three, four. Um, And what it's doing is actually taking a use case into user experience. So I call this a UX case. And what we're seeing seeing here is how interaction connects artifacts to purpose in the user experience. So I'm just gonna go back to the previous slide. So these two colored boxes for user experience um, they're they're the transition from the artifact to to purpose. And what you what a UX case does is it, it it shows all the detail inside those boxes. Um, so th- this technique uh, worth maps are based on a marketing technique called hierarchical value maps, um, but they just get far too complex uh, in between the artifact and purpose. So I developed user experience t- case, uh, t- cases as, um, as a way of hiding all that low-level information. And then finally, if you want to, you can take that use c- user experience case and turn it into a worth delivery scenario. So, what we're now seeing is how some beneficiaries interaction can connect artifacts to purpose in their user experience. And this is a more detailed way of testing uh, or, or thinking out uh, the interaction that's described in the table so the main point here is that if you're developing if you're developing four arenas in parallel you have to have ways of connecting them together now the fact is in classic engineering design you don't have ways of connecting things together there's just this this wishful thinking that the work products that come out of one phase can be transformed in the next phase and there is not a lot of evidence that that actually happens um so three parts of the framework the first is work concurrently the second one is continuously connect and the third one is to be generous so i think one of the, the weaknesses of human-centered design is it tries to ground everything that we're going to do in knowledge of users and that means it's inherently conservative and what you find if you look at innovation work if you look at the best creative design work They are not sticking to what people say they want or need. They're not sticking to what user research suggests that people want or need. They're going beyond that. And, you know, right from Henry Ford onwards and Steve Jobs, uh, Dennis Lasden, the architect, Ken Grange, I'll give examples of those. Um, You know, we just have to accept that the best design work was never achieved solely by human-centered design. Human-centered design makes a big difference, but it is not enough to innovate. Um, You need vision as well as data, and you don't just connect between the beneficiaries and purpose. Um, There are many other forms of connection that will will give you much better um, product opportunities and a much better value proposition solely by trying to ground it in user data. So this is why I choose a worth focus for purpose. So you want designs to be worthwhile. And the great thing about worth, you see in the L'Oreal strap tagline, is worth a very unusual word in English. It relates positives to negatives. So because your beauty is worth all the money, buy L'Oreal. So positives must be worth negatives. Benefits must be worth sacrifices. So whatever you sacrifice in terms of costs and risks, must be worth it in terms of the benefits you get and you have to have demonstrable positives so you know we've got things like value sensitive design the problem with high level values is it's not clear how they're demonstrated in practice i think high level values are it, uh, are they're helpful categories for getting you to drill down to things which are more concrete and observable um, but to achieve worth the positives must outweigh the negatives It's not just positive UX, it's positive outcomes as well. It's not just the absence of poor usability. So it's arguable that usability was wholly focused on negatives. What can't people do? What's not right? Um, And value-sensitive design in its early days, again, was wholly focused on negatives. And it's no wonder um, that user-centered design with those sort of value orientations was not very popular or attractive because it was completely focused on negatives, which in 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 product models like the Carnot model do not get you market share. You do not get market share by saying that the brakes always work on this car. People expect the brakes to work. People expect good usability. People expect their values not to be breached. So it's not a benefit telling them that they're getting what they think they should be getting Any anyway, other than, other, you know, it just as it's not a benefit having a car um, being told that the brakes always work on the new car you want to buy. So you've got a balance between positives and negatives for experience and outcomes. And depending on the project, experience and outcomes will be considered differently. There are some products like games where experience is very important, but there are outcomes like, you know, being at the top of a leaderboard. And there are other um, application areas, particularly high-end design tools like Photoshop, an Alias Wavefront, where the outcomes are the only things that really count, and creatives will just accept if they're using really complicated, high-end design tools that it's not going to be easy, and it's going to take months, if not years, to become an expert in Photoshop, or in um, or in Alias Wavefront and similar very complicated tools. So let's look at generosity. So Dennis Lasden was the architect of the South Bank and lots of other big, brutal concrete structures um, from the 60s, but uh, still much loved the South Bank Centre in London. And Dennis Lasden said, our job is to give the client on time and on cost not what she wants, but what she never dreamed she wanted. And when she gets it, she recognises something she wanted all the time. That's in stark contrast to a user-centred approach that says it's only validated needs and wants from user research that can inform design work. The images are of Ken Granger's redesign of the Friston & 804 sewing machine um, in 1971. It cost just under £100 then. It would cost over £1,000 now. So this was an expensive sewing machine and he'd been asked to restyle it. And he had the existing one and working with, he thought, "This, this is a terrible thing to use. So he moved the mechanism to the back from the center. That's no good for someone who's left-handed, but, um, you know, he was at least making it better for right-handed people. He got rid, he, he made the base fold out to make a, so you get got a much bigger work area. By moving the mechanism to the back and folding the base out, you've got a much better area to work on. It's much easier to clean around the needle. You're not sticking your finger in a hole and, 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 um, Impaling your finger on the needle and and there was storage space in there as well. Ken was not asked to do this By Friston Rossman's Japanese owners. He just as a designer did not want to just restyle it He just saw it's not worth it and he actually even the night before he wasn't sure if he would present the second design so that's the thing about generosity, that the design team, whoever they are, not just the creative designers, any member of the design team, whether it's a user representative, a marketing person, a designer, an engineer, a technologist, they can all suggest ways of being generous, of giving people what they were ne- they've they never thought of and never expected. And that's what drives really true innovation. So in summary, big design is balanced and I've got a mixer there. It's not balanced like a scales. It's not cutting up a cake at a children's party that everyone gets a fair share. It's getting the right mix. And for each project and for each episode in the project, that mix varies. And you can see that very clearly in Jenny George's proportional abstract design situations. It's integrated by being connected and it's generous. So how do we get it to work? So from social arena theory, we can say we need actors who can perform work in their arenas and connect with others. So again, that Japanese study, one of the key things they stressed was multi-learning that got lost in Scrum, and that Japanese engineering companies, product engineering companies, back in the 1980s, were stopping engineers having single disciplines. You had to have be able, you had your main discipline, and you had to be able to do something well enough to make a a, a reasonable first attempt at a design and to be able to work closely and connect with the other disciplines. So you need actors who can work in their arena and connect with the other arenas. You need rules, so ethics for user testing. You need resources, tracking resources, the connecting resources I've just shown you, worth maps, user experience cases and uh, worth delivery scenarios. If a resource has an expressive or performative function, that becomes the stage. So it might be a document, it might be a presentation, it might be a performance, it might be a video. But these are ways of presenting work in design. So essentially we need resources, approaches that group them, and actors who can complete, adapt and complement them. So there are no complete methods or processes in advance of design work. You can understand why, from a management point of view, it would be great to have a process that worked every time and it would be great to have methods that work every time. But a method is an achievement. You can only ever see a method in your rearview mirror. You can see what your method was. But when you start, you're sorely mistaken if you really know in advance exactly how your user testing is going to go. If you, If that is the case, you're doing something very routine and you've just commoditized user testing as a way of reliably making money um, or ticking boxes to say the user testing's been done. You're not really thinking about your user testing if you do the same thing every time. And that design work is a progression, not a procession. So the very idea of a process up front um, appeals a lot to, to managers, particularly if they've not got a design background, but it is simply not what happens in creative disciplines at all. And if it did, you would not get the great design and the great films and the great moving images that we get and the great computer games. Okay, I'm just looking at the time now. Um, I'll go through um, some case studies. Um, I don't know, Eunice or Josh, if you just want to shout at me to stop at some point. Um, I think I've got about 10 more minutes from when we started. So uh, if, I'm, if just just wave at me if I'm too going on too long. The, 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 these slides, as I said, there's, there's five case studies. So if I skip one of them, it, it doesn't matter too much because they're, they're all these are all published. So this was work I did with the Value Project in Finland, and this was a case study with PAF, who um, are the Oland Island Penny Slot Machine Company. But they have a, a gambling monopoly in Finland, and that meant that they were very early online players in online gaming. Um, this is a worth map, again, that connects um artifacts to purpose and they working with a gambling company you know regardless of what i just said about um user data and the rest this is a company that likes data and it's a company that likes numbers so they they used sentence completion to get a sense of people's experiences and feelings when they were ga- gaming online and used those to form the top and bottom of this worth map The rest of the worth map was formed creatively and collaboratively in in, in workshops. And because they were starting off from user values and experiences, they ended up with blank boxes. And that's basically saying, we don't know what we've got in the product at the moment that will support these experiences and outcomes. And what was interesting was this company had been using Agile for several years and a lot of the things that ended up in those blue boxes were already on the backlog it's just that when they were doing their sprint plan they they didn't they didn't have a basis for prioritizing what should come off next in terms of experience and outcomes so they actually put features in place um that had been under consideration for some time Uh, again i don't fully know the outcomes the actual process was a great success but because it was a commercial product um, they never ever told us what they did in full. I've I've got some ideas that I can't share or what the outcomes were, but um, certainly if you look at the way this, this project um, informed uh, product strategy, it was quite clear that this was successful. There was a study um, and this is quite a contrast because they're not using worth maps. They're not using any of the connecting resources. All they're doing is thinking in terms of worth. So this was redesigning a mobile phone for older users in South Africa. And what reading my Nordic Eye paper from 2006 on worth did for Renaud and Bill Yom was to realize that too much accessibility work was negative. It was looking at things that were inaccessible and often removing them, rather than looking at things that were valuable and preserving them. So what they did was they aimed to keep the useful features while improving usability and accessibility. Um and they took theories of motivation from psychology and theories of basic needs that produced a baseline for for mobile phones. They mapped these into usage spaces that Aaron Marcus and a colleague developed which are essentially groups of activities. Um like you know things like entertainment uh, features on a phone And and those activity groups, those usage spaces were a concourse. They actually provided a bridge between um, purpose and artefact, a very informal one, a very creative space. Um, Aaron Marcus is a a designer, Um, but these were and it was published interactions, his paper on usage spaces. But these are very loose, very simple. They're like patterns, they're like Alexander's patterns. Um, And then they did participative design with South African users and produced a mobile phone prototype with a balance of useful and usable. So the point here is that if you think in terms of worth, you have to look at both the positives and the negatives. If you take a value proposition approach from business, you will ignore the negatives. And and we know that most products get killed by the negatives, not saved by the product, the positives. Equally, (coughs) if you take a classic usability approach, you, you're only focused on the negatives and you could produce something that is perfectly usable, but absolutely useless. So what worth did in this study and everyone else that's made use of worth as a strategic concept is it keeps you focused on the positives and the negatives in experience and in outcomes and the balance between them. It stops you getting overly focused on one thing. Third case study, This is my favorite because this is a master's student who took my approaches and used all of them successfully. Uh, he never contacted me. I didn't know he was doing it. He he was an intern with the Finnish golf club and, uh, he he and the development team redeveloped their system and it lasted from 2013 to 2018. I'm in touch uh, with a lot of these case studies because I'm doing an impact case study for the British research assessment. Um, so he, he built two HQ staff. He used bipolar laddering interviews rather than sentence completion. But again, he found a method um, from psychology that worked for worth. It, it actually did positive and negative ladders. And again, collaboratively built the worth maps with the development team, um, just as happened on the Finnish project and the business team were involved as well. He only made one user experience case because user experience cases are very detailed and very fiddly they're a very detailed form of user story mapping. Um, he only did it when he had a problem in user testing and he used it to debug an interaction saying, you know I thought I'd designed this interaction well and I'm seeing all these problems where's it gone wrong?" and he used a user experience case to to successfully diagnose what was going wrong there first two iterations were to do with usability and data quality the final one was positive so again uh, that's um, vus thesis at, um, at alto university and again i think it, it, for people that say this is all very theoretical and very complicated um, I, I think if a master student can run with it i mean clearly a very very bright and talented master student um, then then it really has got some legs the ARROWS framework was developed um, in Grenoble Um there's Papers and Interact. Um, so they came up with rather than calling them, um, their way of dealing with positives and negatives was talking about appreciations, requirements and rationale. So requirements were negatives that have to be avoided. Appreciations were benefits that people wanted and the worth map provided the rationale for it. And um, Fatimata Kamara is a great advocate of worth maps and she's Developed a lot of infrastructure uh, to support people in using them. So, they were used for three systems for Cocoon, which was a social notification app on com- uh, Fatimata's thesis, Calibri, which is a commercial product. So, Fatimata was involved in the product inception for that and the early product strategy used Worth Maps. And I've got documented evidence that they really did frame. Um, the product strategy in ways that are still used for the messaging on the website today. So the way that they present that, that product is very much congruent with the structure of the worth map. The same thing happened with the Finnish gambling um, project. Um, The first changes made to the website were made to content by the customer intelligence officer because she could see that what people wanted was actually in the offering but the website was not correctly communicating it. So she changed the marketing and communications aspects of the website very quickly ahead of changes in the software. Um, so I think again, you can see how these approaches actually allow business strategists, engineers, creatives, and human factors people to work together. Um, and again, they got a good balance of positive and negative. And then the final uh, system was a future ID. It was a European project looking at privacy and security management. OK, last case study, Jennifer George, her thesis is online. She developed a lot of new resources. I'm just looking at time. I won't go into them in details, but the high level messages are that she she came up with tables that were much quicker than drawing worth maps, and that was quite valuable. She replaced a, an MVP experiment with a, a questionnaire that unusually wasn't just a user questionnaire. It actually tested assumptions about the technology and assumptions about strategy, um, and which basically meant and their experiences of existing technologies. So my care circle was a social media and information system support care circles of um, children with major motor impairments, major communication difficulties. So very early on, she checked her assumptions, not with an MVP experiment, but a very sophisticated questionnaire um which she then communicated to the developer via personas and she also developed an element measurement strategy to evaluate achievement of worth the msc student that, vu that was one of the things he struggled with and most of the tracking representations I, i've shown you are down to jenny so she did she did a fantastic job in her phd uh, very quickly i won't go into detail here at all two of the case studies that are written up quite extensively the family archive at Microsoft Research Cambridge, which is where I pretty much fine-tuned Worth Maps and developed user experience cases. And uh, Rui Jose overlapped with me for a month at Microsoft, um, and he was he'd sat in on the early Worth Mapping workshops, and he was really taken with Worth Mapping. So they applied it to a, a staff room um, information display in a school. So I'm on my last slide now. Uh, Thank you very much for your attention. So to sum up, um, it is about sharing the design space. Um, It's not about saying who's in charge, because I think we've got to be honest in any real product development situation, the human centered design people do not hold the trump cards. It's the engineers and the creatives who hold the trump cards and the business people who ultimately um, make decisions. And, you know, I've got so many colleagues get upset by poor decisions about design management from business colleagues. But I think a lot of the time that's because there aren't ways of properly engaging the business people in the process in a way that they actually understand what's happening. And I would argue that these approaches by actually accepting that you do strategy, design, user research and evaluation at the same time, not the same mix each time, is a way of keeping everyone on the same page. And by using connection representations like worth maps that every stakeholder has boxes that matter to them on a worth map is actually like a storyboard and animation. It's a shared representation that everyone has got a stake in. So we want to let design workers work. We don't want to manage them into really poor second-rate design work. So we contract with abstract design situations, which are connected arenas. We let these design arenas co-evolve. We let connections do the choosing. We have implicit design rationales and we only drill down when we need to. And we, we saw that with Vu's thesis, that he only analyzed one interaction when the evaluation data said it wasn't working. He didn't do loads of analysis first. And, you know, my position is if a product succeeds and delivers on its business objectives, it doesn't matter if people can nitpick about the process it doesn't matter if people say oh you didn't do the user research right you didn't do the evaluation right it you know good process does not make good products that is a myth you know good products come from good design work and in fact methods and processes can get in the way um so you know design decisions tend to happen it's just this magic and you can see uh, you can watch In design meetings, you can see good design teams all nodding and the rest. No one's saying anything, but you know, after a lot of discussion, a lot of disagreement and a lot of going around the houses, they've all got to the same place and it's their behaviors that tell you they've made a decision, not their utterances. It's what they do next. It's what they go and work on next that shows you what sort of decisions they think have been agreed and how good the consensus and understanding is. so what we need to do with design arenas and connections is frame them, populate them, realize them, and that we work in episodes. So something I skipped on the slide with Jenny is that rather than thinking in terms of phases and stages, we need to think in terms of episodes. And episodes are like acts in a drama, that they've got scenes and each each activity in design work is a scene with its own actors, its own set, its own props. So I hope um, I didn't try to Force too much into your heads all at once now. So there's uh, there's time for questions. And thank you very much for coming and listening. And I look forward to your questions. Thank you.
0: Wow, this is a really interesting, like um, a concept and topic that uh, you have. Uh yeah. It's it's really um, like a reminds all of us here that it is, design is not just simple, like a listening to the users and then then thanks. we make it as a UX. Yeah. Uh, So it is a really complex process that requires a lot of vision, a lot of uh, discussion, connection. And it's just amazing that uh, you bring this all together. Uh, So it's actually like there is a question here, like uh, how do we convince business uh, industry to adopt the BIT or the BIT uh, design framework?
1: I think you have to find champions. I think what tends to happen is people have been on courses um, or, uh, I'm, I'm brought onto projects. Um, I, th- I think it's a big ask. There are a lot of, ve- I'll be quite honest. There's a lot of vested interests, um, about having the balance of design work in, in the open. Um, and I, I think you just have to get people doing bits of it. Um, I don't think you can introduce a whole framework like this in one go. So I think it, it it's, it's understanding, you know, if I was, if you gave me, you know, four separate organizations, I wouldn't do the same thing. I'd try to get a feel for what mattered to them. So, you know, the example of the, the Finnish gambling system, th- this is a numbers company. And if you didn't do your user research with numbers, you weren't, you weren't going to get anywhere. So the thing there was showing them that there was ways of doing market research that actually would give you a much more concrete set of value propositions that would give you your design strategy. Um, and they got it. I mean, that company, the the senior design engineer said they would never use worth maps again because he didn't need to. They understood what was going on. And like a lot of good designers, they could do them in their heads. They understood how to talk design worth maps. They didn't need to draw them anymore. They just needed to walk through. So, so it was almost like they were walking through a user experience case. So. I think it's looking at where the, the you know what is the best way in. Um, I think if you've got a company that's used to doing quite sophisticated product strategy, so let, let's say I don't know how many of you know Strategizer, uh, who produce the business model canvas. And the, I think if you've got companies who are using the value proposition canvas, I think a worth focus and certainly with worth maps produces a much better structure. I I, I would always use value proposition canvas first. It's a great way to get going. It's a great way to get things down. But I have alternatives to value proposition canvases, which are in the book, that um, also get you going really quickly. Um, But I don't think there's, you know, I think in any technology transfer, process transfer setting, you have to understand the people who want to take it up and you have to find ways of supporting them. So. You know, I've gone from being on the team, being the facilitator, to being an advisor to the team, to having no connection whatsoever. (laughs) But I think you have to, I mean, the key thing is you have to have people who believe in these approaches. And I think if people look at this and it doesn't float their boat, then, you know, it's not going to go anywhere. You've got to have people who are, are willing to champion it. Yeah.
0: Uh, yes, because uh, UX does not rely on what people say, but UX really needs to be based on data. Does UX can provide data to mean quantitative data? How and what data must you yes. provide? Okay, so
1: like? I think the, the, the simple answer here is the Lean UX approach, is that you you go forward with a mix of knowledge and assumptions Um and you test that out with an mvp so the data that ux provides is the data back from the mvp experiment um but you could make a decision that some assumption is so business critical that you have to flesh it out beforehand so again process is different but i think i I, I think the advantage of lean ux is that the data you're collecting is always relative to a design and as long as there's a good first cut design which to be honest with good designers is often the case um what you really want to know is what people's reactions are to that prototype um so i i know sage the big accountancy software firm is based in newcastle um they have a cloud-based product um where at one point i'd taught most of the team um all worked on industry projects with the companies that had developed members of that team so i knew that team quite well um and their ux people took prototypes out to trade shows you know so you know in the accountancy world there are lots of events you can go to and they just schedule doing demos on the stand so it's i don't think there's a simple answer to this um i think The data that you provide in UX is it's about risk management Um, and it just might be other areas where you're not sure. So I think this has to be done collaboratively and I think you need to work with the business people and the design people and the engineering people and that's what I think it's worth looking at Jenny George's thesis because this is what her questionnaire did. It actually took all of those um and she'd already done a lot of field work so it's not as if she was over-reliant She'd done about three or four field studies before she did the questionnaire um but yeah i, I i've got to you know i've got to be honest there isn't a straightforward answer here but i i i think a, a key test is if the rest of the team don't believe the data you want to collect is worthwhile you've got a problem i think you have to it's this thing about connecting you have to be able to to defend how collecting that data is going to improve the design work. And I think a lot of the time, um, unfortunately, a lot of UX people are still behaving as if they're doing a university project and they're trying to keep, or they're trying to keep reviewer too happy. Um, They're doing the sort of project that they would do on a psychology or an ethnography degree, um, which isn't necessarily what you need in a design setting. Um, And this is why people talk of design ethnography. Um, and I, I think design ethnography is a great idea. I, I haven't seen the practice articulated particularly well, though. I think people know it's different, but there's not a strong understanding of um, of how it uh, how it differs from you know proper anthropologist ethnography.
0: Thank you. I think we, we are a bit uh, uh for the time, but uh, we, we, I would like to uh, address two last questions here from Josh and JJ Lee. Uh, yeah. So, the question from Josh is, what does episodes look like in the real product design and development?
1: Well, that's really easy because uh, Jenny George was a part-time student. Um, it was a practice-based project. It was research to design and it was a real product with a real developer. Um, so let's just go back. That, that so that's, so here are the episodes down here. I skipped over this, Josh. So what you've got um, is you've got activities that are grouped into episodes. So the key thing about an episode, and you'll see this if you're looking at design work, is that eventually things, people just stop pushing the design forward for various reasons. So, Shearn talks about things coming to a stop, and that's when reflection on ha- action happens. So, an episode is a set of activities that significantly change the frame in one or more design arenas. So, you don't know at the start when the episode is going to end. And of course, this is very difficult for planning. Um, but it's when you get to the point where you've, you've either closed off a lot of uncertainty or you've introduced some new thinking. So an, an episode is a set, a coherent set of activities that have a very clear narrative of how the design either how the design frame sh- has shifted for the arena or how the actual content of the arena has significantly moved forward. And that's what Jenny's trying to capture, um, with the circles here. Um, But they do have a logic to them. So, you know, if you've watched Friends, you know, a lot of the episodes are things like the one where Phoebe did something. And I think you can give episodes names like that. So in Jenny's thesis, her second episode, it's apps. She went in thinking she was going to do a decision support system. And that always happens in design. You've always got an idea of what you think you're going to do. And quite often, the brief actually says, the management will say, you're going to do an app even if an app isn't the right answer. Uh, and she thought she was going to do a decision support system. And her initial fieldwork made it absolutely clear that was not going to work. <laughs> but she had some other ideas. So the first episode is very much sort of vision and disappointment. The second one, we we jokingly called two-timing. Because she knew that her existing design wasn't going to work like your existing boyfriend, but it was too—you know—it was too early to dump him. Um, so she basically started doing some work around another design, and she kept them both in frame. Um, and then the third episode is the one where she does that really sophisticated questionnaire. Um, so I think when you see these things, there's a clear logic, and um, the advantage of a—you know—what what classic box and arrow diagrams do is they put a single type of activity in a box and everyone goes, "Okay, user research, we know what that is. Oh, requirements, we know what that is. Um, But in reality, everything else is happening at the same time. Um, So I know that may not be I don't know how helpful an answer that is to you, Josh, but I think I think if you look back at design work, you can see the coherence. I've got another Ph.D. graduate, Malcolm Jones, Who's graduated this year, and his thesis should be online soon. Um, um, it, the COVID stuff's delayed it going online. He 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 got through his uh, his thesis quite uh, a few months ago, uh, but Malcolm's done very very detailed analysis of design work, and you can see the rhythms. Um, and what he what he was looking at was how people do story work in design, and you can see the rhythms of how things come together. And Malcolm's a graphic designer, and he just showed this convergence of how all the different themes just start building up until it's like a fruit machine. You've got, th- you know, not three lemons in a row, 14 lemons in a row. And all of a sudden, everything snaps into place. Um, and I think, you know, if you look at areas like fashion and advertising, interior design, graphic design, art directors and creative directors, are they used to feeling this pulse in this rhythm? And they know when to step in and, and get hold of things and nudge them. It's it's again, it's in the Japanese work, subtle management control that the scrum people completely missed out. Um, but, you know, it's this rear view mirror thing again, um, everything, method, process, episode, you know what it was, but, you know, part of good creative design is just having the creative confidence to keep moving um, and just, you know, that's what reflection is about. Is just constantly taking stock of how we're we doing. Are we going in the right direction? Are we making progress? um And not trying to measure that up against a Gantt chart that is a complete fiction.
0: Thank you, Gilbert. Um, now we go to the last question from Gigi. um Yeah. You can a question yourself. Like, uh, have you all? Offered- accept any intelligibility challenges to explain big design and concept or practice of co-evolution to those who are more comfortable with method-led formula-led design
1: no thanks for that question jj i'm a very lucky person the answer is no but i could i know where i could go to get that sort of pushback um and i think people who are used to project management techniques like prints which work for tame problems you know um I think there's a massive problem. So, if you actually, so if you do look at the books, um, I'll just come back forward because I've I've put the the Bitly address in a format that you can quickly take a note of. Um, So it's bit.ly and then slash, and there's no spaces in it, but I've just broken things up to make it easy to take down. The third chapter of Book One is a design research, design practice, fiction, a design research fiction. And it's a it's a panel of experts who've been charged with improving engineering design education. And I've used fiction here to expose the sort of comments that you would get from these people who are comfortable with method led formula. And, And these comments are from reviewers comments over the years with me and um, with people in management roles so you know uh, you know big blue chip companies who should know better you've got innovation managers who saying before project begins that they need to be sure it's going to work well you're not you know you cannot plan creative work so um so that chapter is an attempt to expose the ideologies involved behind rational bureaucratic planning and just expose how ridiculous it is so um But there isn't anything in that chapter that's not based on actual experience of people pushing back. Um, I think what's very interesting is that in the Wicked problem paper and in the the New New Product Design paper, um, that they both point the finger at NASA for rational project management and program management. Um, I mean, there's a massive irony here. That the people who thought up the methods to show that a project was going to deliver on time, to specification, to budget, was an organization with only one time deadline to beat the Russians, no specification, and a pretty much unlimited budget. And that NASA's program and project management methods were really political devices to reassure the politicians that the billions and billions of dollars they were putting into the space race were being well managed. But, you know, uh, I think some people might not like to hear this, but I think an awful lot of project and process management techniques are babysitting. They're actually about keeping the sponsor happy, which is why in areas like advertising, you have an account manager whose job it is to hide what's happening <laughs> from the client and keep them happy, you know, and, and, you know, their job is to keep the client on board. So, you know, I'm thinking on my feet here, JJ, but it might well be um that it is about taking the sort of approaches um, that people in advertising take. Um, You know, there's there's all sorts of stories in advertising of big agencies pulling the final presentation for a campaign concept from the taxi downstairs. Because, you know, apart from the Super Bowl, which produces awful adverts, because it's a hard deadline, people don't remember that a campaign was late, but God, they remember if it was bad. And, you know, good, good ad agencies and good architects as well will, and and Johnny Ive did it at Apple as well with the expos. They will pull something at the last moment because they know it's not good enough. Um, And it's about, so I think, you know, I'm rambling on a bit here, but I think we've got a lot of experience in the creative disciplines of how to manage people that, who want, they want people to be really creative, really original and really innovative and predictable you know, and you you can't have all of that. So, I don't know if that was an answer or or just a rambling, JJ. (laughs) But other than it's tough. (laughs) Uh,
0: Yeah, so thank you so much, Gilbert, for sharing with us. Well, thank you so much everyone uh, for coming and um, thank you Gilbert for uh, being with us uh, this evening. And thank you for everyone from many places coming today. Okay, thank you very much
1: everybody. Good night. Okay. Bye bye everyone. Lovely seeing you all. Yep. Okay. Uh, I'm i you, you Bye. Thank you, Gilbert. <laughs> thank you, Gilbert. Bye-bye. Thank you, bye. Gilbert. Uh, Miss Eunice.